Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We are bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Nathan Price, the Chief Scientific Officer of Thorne Health Tech, a science-driven wellness company that utilizes testing, data, and artificial intelligence models to deliver personalized solutions to consumers, health professionals, and corporations. Dr. Price was recognized as one of 10 emerging leaders in health and medicine by the National Academy of Medicine in 2019. In 2021, Dr. Price was appointed to the Board of Life Sciences for the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Nathan Price. Thank you for joining us today. Your work towards helping people get and stay healthier longer is inspiring, and I'm honored to be able to speak with you today. Thanks, Avi. It's really wonderful to be with you today. Look forward to our conversation. Yeah, I just wanted to start by, you know, maybe setting the stage for what is scientific wellness, right? Thorne talks a lot about healthy aging and scientific wellness. Can you explain maybe what that means to you? Yeah, uh, scientific wellness is a term or in a, an area that uh, Lee Hood and I have worked on for a number of years and fits broadly into what's become a, a really huge trend in the world, which is trying to move away from this notion of healthcare as being only dealing with late stage disease and thinking more about how do we focus on our wellness and improving our health throughout life and trying to extend health span. So being proactive rather than reactive. And so I think one way to think about it is if you think about wellness, you can kind of break it down into two categories, uh, one right. being general wellness, which relates to a lot of the things that we may have done for a long time, yoga, right, exercise, movement, you know, lift heavy things, <laughs> uh, run, walk, you know, all those elements that we know are hugely important to our general health and our general wellness, uh, social inter interconnection, actually the most important. And on the flip side, is this emerging notion of you know, what we call scientific wellness. And the idea of scientific wellness is really to leverage a lot of the new technologies for making measurements, for being precise in what's happening in our body systems, looking for the earliest warning signs for transition to disease so that they can be reversed before you really become uh, symptomatic. And basically, there's a whole kind of human experiment going on in our lives uh, over time, which is how malleable how is our span of wellness? How far can it be pushed? How much can we benefit from taking these deeper dives? And we're in the very early stages of that. So we're, you know, it's going to be exciting to find out. Is that a, you know, I saw on Thorne's test offering, you offer a biological age test. Would that be a good example of what you mean here by pushing the bounds of understanding really how our body is reacting to what we, the inputs and outputs of it, right? Exactly. Uh, so biological age is, and there's a lot of different ways that are out there, and a lot of them are quite gimmicky, and, and there are a number that I think are quite interesting as people think about this. But the notion is that you age differently, all of us age somewhat differently. And, and that's when you think about age not as primarily a number in terms of the, you know, the number of times we've circled the, you know, the sun and, and <laughs> that, how old we are. But a biological age is more about thinking of aging as a process of damage in the body. Okay. And so your rate of aging in that sense, it can make a big difference, the kind of lifestyle you're living, you know, what are your stressors? What are the things that are being put upon you? 
that will accelerate that pace of aging. And we know in animal systems, for example, that there are interventions that you can do that will have an effect, sometimes a big effect, on the extension of their health span or even their lifespan. And so what we get into then, if you don't know, take a compound like nicotinamide riboside, which is one of the things that thorn cells has to do with a couple other places. But basically, that molecule has been shown to improve NAD levels. It's related to things like the sirtuins, right, which David Sinclair and others are very famous for in the ability to protect from DNA damage. So you're looking at cellular energy, you're looking at DNA damage repair. And the, the level of evidence that's there is that you know you can have this effect on health span or lifespan across many different species. And we know in humans that it increases NAD pools. So we know that it has the same sort of functional effect. We don't know yet whether or not it will have a big effect on health span or lifespan in humans because not enough, we live a long time, not enough time has elapsed. Sure. But those are the kind of gambles you get into a little bit with scientific wellness, which is the whole notion of, okay, here's what the evidence base is. This is what we know about it. We know it passes safety thresholds and we know it has the functional effect. And then there's the expectation or the hope that you know, we'll see a similar kind of effect on health span that we see in the animal models. Yeah, I, I really think that's fascinating. And I think as you talk about you know the wellness and you know, really about that upfront care, right? So well care versus sort of sick care. I think there's a lot we can talk about um, the healthcare system and, and paradigm shifts there. But perhaps before we dive into that, how did you really get started in this in this area? Really, where did your precision wellness journey begin? Yeah, I got really interested in this uh, when I was a professor at the Institute for Systems Biology and working closely with uh, Lee Hood, who was the you know president of the institute and a good friend and mentor for a long time as well. And you know, we became increasingly convinced that the way that we were going about the usual approach of trying to understand disease in its late stages and find drugs to have an impact on that disease was a limited paradigm. Okay. And in fact, Lee Hood and I have just written a book. It'll come out next year from Harvard University Press under the Belknap imprint. So we'll have a, you know, a book that'll be coming out uh, next May, which we're excited about, all about uh, scientific wellness and all these issues. But around 2013 is when this really kicked off uh, in terms of our thinking. And then in 2014, we carried out a study, which we called the Pioneer 100 Wellness Project uh, that Lee and I were the uh, co-PIs on. And as we did that, what we were interested in was to to get, in this case, 100 and ended up being 108 because you know, people kept wanting to get involved. So we, <laughs> we kept adding a few more, but uh, 108 people that we took through a program where we did whole genome sequencing on everybody. And then multiple times per year, we'd measure metabolomes and microbiomes and proteomes and uh, basically made thousands of measurements out of the body. We also made about 100 different uh, clinical measures, the kind of things that your doctor would do, so LDL cholesterol, hemoglobin A1C, that kind of thing. Data from wearables, uh, so okay. we had everyone wearing Fitbits primarily, measuring themselves on scales, you know, things of that nature, and basically put all this together to form what we call personal dense dynamic data clouds. And so the idea there, or deep phenotyping as a shorthand. And so what we were able to do was to generate probably the most densely measured cohort of people to that point, and then monitored their health. And then we paired them with health coaches 
so that they could get benefit from learning from some of the things that were coming out of the data. And so the whole idea around scientific wellness was if you could gather deep information from individuals, could you build a program that would improve their health, give them enough of a benefit so that it was really worth it to them to be able to come get this kind of information, these measures. And then on the back end, for those that would allow their data to be used anonymously for research purposes, uh, which most people that went through the program did, I think uh, over 90% did in this case, that was super valuable because what it did is it started to let us unlock, and we can get into more of these things, it helped us unlock what are the health implications of the microbiome? How does your genetics predict the outcome of lifestyle interventions? What are early potential early warning signs for disease that you can learn under this kind of uh, rich data in the context of genetic risk profiles and on and on and on. And it's been actually, and we've published, I don't know, 20 or so papers in, in high profile scientific journals going through just discovery after discovery after discovery after discovery from looking at this kind of information. I think it's unbelievably transformational to get this to work at scale. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as, as we look at, you know, where you took maybe some of that research, I know you co-founded um, Aravel, right, mm -hmm. uh, which was named as GeekWire's 2016 Startup of the Year and <laughs> moved on to, to actually be the CEO of, of Longevity, right, an artificial intelligence-based health company. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to maybe understand a little bit about how you've taken some of that research and brought it into those more commercial experiences. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about that. So I'll do it chronologically. So I'll start with, uh, with Aravel. So Aravel was a company that was co-founded by uh, Lee Hood, Clayton Lewis, and myself. Clayton was our, you know, the business leader and CEO and you know, really helped turn that into a business, taking the science that Lee and I had, had developed around scientific wellness. Uh, it was an incredible ride, I have to say. So Aravel, and for listeners that don't know, Aravel is now out of business. Uh, so you know, it, had a, it had a rise and a fall economically, I'll say. Aravel, though, was built around this whole notion that we could come in and have a, a material impact on people's health. And that actually was shown out really nicely. Uh, people in the program, when we use biological age, for example, uh, what we saw was that as people went through Aravel, uh, there was an improvement in biological age relative to chronologic age of 1.16 years per year on average. Uh, wow. We published this all in journals of gerontology. And women in particular did the best. They improved at one and a half years per year in terms of biological age. Uh, men got better at 0 0.8 years per year relative to chronologic age. So, and we saw, and then a bunch of different, you know, clinical markers and those kind of things got better. And we've published all of those, those elements. So we had good health outcomes there. And as I mentioned, the data that came out of Aravel has been the centerpiece of know, at least 20 or so scientific papers with many different discoveries, which we can get into. So it was a really interesting ride. The people that we had involved in that company as well were just really remarkable. I just thought, you know, a really high level, great integrity, great people to mm -hmm. interface with, super smart. Everyone was very mission driven. Uh, when Aravelle, the difficulty there though, was people just didn't have a good idea of what scientific wellness really was, what it meant. And so it made it a little bit of a vague value proposition. Okay. Uh, and also the cost at that point in time was significantly higher than it is now. A lot of the assays have come down significantly in cost. 
and the number of insights went up. And then the other big factor was that we weren't able to tie Aravel into healthcare. And what that meant was that we had kind of way more information than we were allowed to give back to people. And so you ended up in this situation where it was harder to deliver like the full value of what what you could potentially do uh, with that kind of thing. But on the whole, it was uh, it was wonderful. We ran Aravel for about five years and uh, led to, we had 5,000 people that went through the program. Wow. And it's led to, you know, in many of these cases meant that for some of these really deep data types, that was still the largest effort that existed in the world. Like, I think if you look at a cohort of people that has like both metabolomic and microbiome data simultaneously over time with the kind of health markers, it's still a unique resource in the world for that has all those different features to it in terms of the dense data. And that has been remarkably uh, insightful in terms of scientific discovery and the kinds of things that we were we're able to learn, you know, that can have an impact on health. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Lee Hood likes to talk, you know, Lee Hood has founded 17 biotech companies and that have a current market cap, I think of $180 billion. So some of them have been, let's say, very successful. Sure. You know, he's a very famous guy in biotech, a pioneer in that field. You know, what, one of the things he loves to say is that Aravel was his most successful company. And you know, I love it when he says that, and it's uh, you know, I know that's how he feels, uh, not financially for sure, because sure. uh, it did uh, did go under. But in terms of like impact that we think it will have in terms of the early discoveries and what it sets the stage for, because you know, I do have a, a really deep belief that you know that healthcare has to undergo this transition uh, to be much more wellness centric. We're seeing this emerge more now, and so you know that's why I've stayed on this path of wanting to build this this out in a deep way. And so that did lead. So after Airville went down, it was one, it was kind of funny because I had tried to recruit a really good friend and colleague of mine, Joel Dudley, who at the time was uh, executive vice president for precision medicine at Mount Sinai okay. uh, for their hospital system. And he, you know, very accomplished uh, scientist and we'd been good friends for a long time. I tried to recruit him to run data science at Airville back uh, some years ago was unsuccessful in that ultimately. But he left, you know, after I tried to do that, he ended up teaming up with Paul Jacobson, who was the CEO of Thorne and founding uh, the company Longevity, gotcha. uh, which was also kind of on this mission. Joel and I kind of bonded uh, many years ago on our shared vision for kind of bringing uh, deep systems biology, computational biology, precision medicine expertise to the wellness space and trying to drive that forward. So we we shared that interest for a long time. And so then after Aravel went down, about a year later, we connected and I ended up moving to longevity rather than the opposite and uh, took over there uh, first as co-CEO and then CEO as we merged it into Thorn. And so the current effort then is really centered around the company that we have now, which is Thorn Health Tech, okay. uh, which I believe is going to be the, the leading company. I think it is today the leading company in what I would call scientific wellness. It is a much bigger enterprise, certainly than what we had at Aravel. It's a, you know, more like a $240 million a year type. It's a public company. So, you know, that's the advice to the street. So I have to like actually remember to be like accurate about what that projection is. <laughs> I'm not putting any new information here, you know, but it's a, it's a much larger enterprise, but really dedicated to a lot of the same 
mission of what can we do in the preventive health space and how do we bring deep science to improving wellness health span and tie together testing AI and interventions on the wellness side that we can make a difference on. Okay. I definitely want to talk about that, that shift that's needed. Um, maybe mm-hmm. just briefly before we jump there, how, how does AI play into this? You know, you mentioned having these 5,000 participants, right, that went through, you know, maybe the study at Airvale and a lot of the cohorts you had perhaps at the Institute for Systems <laughs> um, Biology. Yes, um, yes. How do you leverage that or is that, is that play part into, into the AI or tell us how that piece of it works? Yeah, it's hugely important. And there's obviously massive leaps forward that are happening in AI right now. And a lot of that is fueled by this massive increase in data, right? Even some of the older conceptions, you know, as you build these, um, you know, deep learning networks, for example, or you're getting to, you know, how many levels deep of a perceptron can you train? And it's funny because I have, you know, my brother-in-law is a, uh, works in, you know, the world's most important problem if you base it on data, which is you know, targeted advertising. <laughs> and and uh, it's kind of funny because they'll compare the size of data that, you know, he's previously, you know, worked at Google. He's now at Amazon. He's pretty, you know, high level there. But the amount of data that goes into, say, like targeted advertising or the amount that you pull off the internet is radically higher than what we have in biology. You know, like if you look at the number of people, you know, like I said, like the Aravel, the deep dense data clouds on Aravel, 5,000, that's one of the largest data sets of that density in the world. There are bigger data sets along an axis like genomics, right? There's 500,000 in the UK biobank or that kind of thing. But, you know, we get into this a little bit because, you know, the data sets generating enough data to really leverage AI in biology is a big challenge if you want to do it from this kind of just you know, machine learning, a whole bunch of information. So a lot of what we have to get into is the kind of ways that you can go about generating the data that's necessary. So that, that's step one. Second is that a lot of times we have to leverage the tools of what we call systems biology, which means that we often aren't going into these analyses blind. Like okay. we do know quite a lot about mechanisms that happen in the body. There's more we don't know, but we know a lot. <laughs> And so you can condition on a lot of those relationships in order to pull out deeper kinds of information. So AI becomes really important on two different fronts. So one is really learning from the data and letting it teach us about where the signal is coming from. I can give some examples of that. And then the second is to encode more about how we interpret that data so that we can deploy you know, algorithms for personalization and that kind of thing. So there's both of these aspects of AI that get deployed into what we're doing in, in biology and in scientific wellness. Okay. Yeah, I mean, as you think about then the shift needed for well care versus sick care, right? To prevent the chronic diseases, right? So we're not treating you know, we're not focused on treating diseases, but focus on well care. You know, I, th- I think there's a lot of research out there on people's fear of the healthcare system. Really, I think it's driven by two factors, right? One is cost and the other one is certainly pain. I'll give a couple of statistics here and, and maybe we can talk about each one of those separately. But, you know, in the Journal of Advanced Nursing in 2019, there was an article published that the fear of needles can affect up to 25% of adults, which leads more than 16% of people in the U.S. to skip vaccinations and blood work. And 
a separate study in the journal Family Medicine was showing that people that had a fear of needles have a heightened risk of morbidity, mortality, simply because they're avoiding healthcare, right? And so I think there's one angle that I'd love to dive into on how do we make people less afraid to participate in well care because yep. they need to have it available, but then they need to want to go do it, right? And not be afraid to do it. And then how, how do we look at the cost? 40% of Americans reported skipping a recommended test or treatment um, in the last 12 months uh, due to cost, right? That was published um, by the West Health Institute in collaboration with the National Opinion Research Center out of the University of Chicago. So I'd love to get your take on both of those angles in, in terms of healthcare and where, where some shifts are needed and, and how wellness can play into that. Yeah, I think both are really important. I'll take them in turn. So the first, I mean, I think what we're really getting to in the first is how do we make healthcare as convenient and easy and painless as possible? And you know, starting from a wellness place and then you know, obviously this relates to care across the board. So this is one of the things that we've been really focused on at Thorne in a couple of different ways. So one is we do have a device called the OneDraw, which is a essentially painless at home uh, blood measurement device. You know, okay. when people rate it on a scale to 10, it, they typically rate it between zero and one on the pain scale. So, you know, and we did this for in a study with the University of Cambridge for 14,000 people with a 99.9% rate of getting a blood sample that we could use. This was unsupervised at home. That's fantastic. You know, so those kind of things I think make it just easier to get samples. I compare it a lot to just to how many things we can get on to an at-home device as well, as right. opposed to having to go into to get physical, you know, to get a phlebotomy somewhere. You know, some tests you still need that, but the more that you can do it on something that's just frictionless, easy, that you can do in the comfort of your own home which people are getting incredibly used to after the pandemic, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, one of the best during the pandemic was we had to get our car serviced and they literally came out, they picked it up, took it in service and brought it back. Was wow. Like, that, was, that was amazing. <laughs> There's definitely was, a shift in convenience, right? And what's in services that are being provided now and that you can get at home. <laughs> exactly. And one other example I'll give of that is even in collecting like a microbiome sample, same issue. If you do your own microbiome, you know, for anyone who has done that, you know, one of the things you have to do is you have to actually get up the bucket or a piece of paper or something. You've got to poop in, in the bucket or on the paper. You've got to take a little scoop, scoop it up, put it into a vial, close it. Some of the tests require freezing. And I don't know where you keep frozen things <laughs> in your, you know, my house, that, that's where the food is, right? So you know, it's not the greatest place. And so there's all this friction. So this led us to invent something that we call the microbiome wipe, which is exactly what it sounds like. Like, Basically, we thought that was the easiest possible way you could get a, a fecal sample, just wipe like normal, drops in a vial, close it, you shake, it disappears in 10 seconds, and it preserves the DNA. And we published a paper validating that in Frontiers in Immunology a couple months ago. And so anyway, all that just to say like this whole notion of just how do we make medicine a lot less, or healthcare, I should say, um, much less to have a lot less friction, right? Friction. Just make it simpler, easier for people to use. Telehealth, I think, has been a big wave as well, where, you know, if all you need is a simple refill of a prescription or you need, you know, some advice about, you know, whatever it is, if you don't need to be there physically, it's so much easier to be able to just pop on, get what you need, come back. And it also has huge health benefits because you don't have to congregate everyone closely with 
where we have a high concentration of people with infectious diseases uh, who are in the hospital for the various reasons that you'd need to be there. So all of that, I think, is really important from the friction side and just the technologies that we bring to bear. On the opposite side, you mentioned cost, and that is a huge one. You know, I just you know had an interaction with you know someone I know very well. You know, she had an accident. She needed to go into the hospital to get a you know something taken care of. You know, not a life threatening, but just a you know in this case was a I think a split lip or something like that. Goes in, comes back, but has no idea what is it going to cost. You know, she doesn't know that in advance. Uh, comes right. back, it ends up being a charge for many thousands of dollars, and you know basically swears that you know she will not interface with the healthcare system for as long as she possibly can. That's a, a simple example, but every single person listening knows 10 of those stories from people, you know, in the last two, I mean, just, it happens over and over sure. and over again. Congress is trying to make that better. They did pass this uh, No Surprises Act earlier this year. So there, you know, there is movement, there's got, starting to be pressure, but it has been a major issue for so many people because healthcare costs can literally bankrupt individuals. And so people are quite vulnerable to this, or it can be just a, a major burden and you don't necessarily know what those costs are. And so I think many, many people, you know, ignore preventive health right. for that reason. The other thing is, is that there's often a misalignment of kind of how our economic systems and healthcare are set up for prevention. And one of the basic ones that's pretty interesting is that if you come up with things in preventive health, the criteria that's always applied to it is that it has to save money. And obviously that's the goal. That's a really good thing. But we never say that a therapy must cost less than nothing. Right. Like therapies are often quite expensive. And so the outcome of that, though, the upshot of it that's very strange is that it means that we have a system that values highly years of sick life and values at nothing years of healthy life. So there, there is this like really odd dichotomy that exists between the, you know, what's applied from a prevention standpoint to what's applied as a therapy standpoint. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good point, right? How do you value the therapies you're going to skip by focusing on, on your wellness, right? Have you seen any, any movement in, in that front? I don't know whether that's through insurance or the healthcare system itself, or, or what, what else do we need to be doing to, to help start you make those changes? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I think that that movement has to be driven by patients, right? It's something okay. that we have to absolutely demand. Because one of the things that comes up so often when you have these discussions with insurance companies is they'll often agree that these approaches to prevention will save money. And they'll often agree that they would be better for people. Right. But one of the problems that you run into economically is that insurance companies will always tell you that they only care about how much cost there is in the next one to three years. So if you're doing something that's a cost, but it, it will prevent a downstream disease because people switch on and off different insurance programs, right. then they will say, well, we could spend this, but it's not guaranteed that we will reap the benefit from it. Therefore, there's a lot of hesitancy to do those things. That's interesting. And there's also these other really misaligned incentives that I think people don't think about that often, which is that 
no one is really economically on the side of the patient fully. You know, healthcare providers, right? Pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies. And in principle, you think, oh, the insurance company is on the side of, you know, keeping your costs down. And that's actually only true over a certain time window. So in the short run, once you've paid insurance companies and they've got the whatever premiums that they've gotten, yes, they have an incentive to try to negotiate and keep costs down. But in the long run, over a long time scale, insurance companies make a percentage of total healthcare spend. So this is one of the big issues that we have and one of the issues that healthcare ends up gobbling up. You know, it's now closing in on one fifth of the entire economy. Yeah. And it grows faster than inflation and it has for many, many years. And because of the way, you know, the very odd way that we do payments in that system, you know, and I'm not, you know, any great expert on that, but the way that we do, you know, payments in the system set us up as in a way that we do get into this kind of endless spiral of, you know, up, 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 up. And that would be okay in a sense if our health outcomes were also going up to that level. Like if we, you know, if we were really living, you know, way longer, way healthier, would that be worth it? Sure. You know, it would be, it could be totally worth it to spend half of your GDP on wellness and on health if you, if you were really getting a massive improvement in that, right? If you were living to 200 because you had to, and you know, we had to spend, you know, half our GDP, that would be worth it. But there's this disconnect right now between the level of benefit and the level of cost becoming really, really hard to sustain. Yeah. If your recommendation is, is for people to take it into their own hands, where, where, should, where should someone start, right? For our listeners, what would be the first step you would take to, to try to figure out your wellness state and, and where to go from there? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's such a good question. There's the obvious table stakes, right? The general wellness things. You know, we all know, you know, the primary beneficiary, you know, not economically, but certainly in life <laughs> is just to, yeah, ac- you know, the usual things, right? Exercise, Exercise, movement, stretching, working out, getting, you know, all those pieces are the most important, getting your diet in check, you know, keeping a good, vibrant social life. I mean, all those kind of things mm-hmm. are obviously beginnings. The flip side then into scientific wellness that I think is so important, and we all know cases like this of people that we love or we care about. And, you know, one person that I know really well, you know, in great shape, bikes everywhere, vegan, and, you know, and he has a horrible cancer. Hmm. And, you know, or another friend of mine like that who died of cancer a couple of years ago or something like that there. So on top of kind of those table stakes are the unseen things that we don't know are happening that we might be able to do something about. And that's where I'm a big proponent of monitoring deeply what's happening in your health. So if you want to do that, get blood measurements done where you can monitor all these different systems. You know, we do the biological age test at Thorne is, you know, one way to do that, but you can do it from LabCorp or Quest, or if you get into a doctor that's really into preventive medicine, there's a whole slew of tests they can do, but get yourself some mobility to do a deep dive into what's happening in your biochemistry so that you can deal with any issues that are there. Second, the gut microbiome, I think is really important. And just understanding, you know, kind of what the baseline is, what's going on there. 60 to 70 million people in the United States suffer from gut related issues. And so, you know, monitoring that is a big aspect of health. I'm a big proponent of the wearables. I think kind of monitoring, you know, where you're at 
I've certainly gotten signals to myself, you know, both positive and warning signs that I think, oh, wow, I didn't realize I was as bad at that as I, (laughs) apparently I am. More than just the, hey, it's time to stand up this hour or. (laughs) Yeah, stand up that hour or, you know, where's your VO2 max at? Like that's a really important measure for longevity. That's the one I'm focusing on a lot right now, which is trying to get that up higher, you know. And, you know, there's a lot of things like that that people can get into. Okay. And then, you know, and I'm a big proponent of, you know, if you find areas that are an issue, you know, or if you have nutritional deficiencies or some problem like that, to address that, which you can do in very simple ways up front. And I was just going through the stats on this this morning, like pre-diabetes, over a third of women and over 40% of men between the years of 2017 and 2020, pre-diabetic in the United wow. States. I mean, it's an incredibly huge problem. So, you know, if you're having those kind of issues, some of those things you can address, you know, with natural products, some of them you can get into uh, with drugs if necessary, but a lot of it comes back to pretty simple lifestyle interventions. And the whole notion between wellness to that disease spectrum is if you're thinking about these things early, you can reverse out of prediabetes by diet and exercise. You can push it with, you know, certain natural products as well. Or if you get into late stage diabetes, once that system is ruined, you know, your glucose control system, it's, it's a massive problem. You can end up losing your ability to feel pain in your extremities. And this is where you get into all this, like there's a big uptick in foot amputations from diabetics in the country, which is an unbelievably gruesome outcome at the end of that process, which is very straightforward to actually stop early. Right but you kind of get past these points of no return and you get into just a really terrible position. Really appreciate your perspective on that. You know, you mentioned in, in covering some of the innovations, right? It's all about accessibility and convenience. Um, another sample type that, that you didn't talk about was saliva. How does that fit into mm-hmm. the way you guys look at not just home collection, but you know, making collection more accessible? Yeah, saliva can be a really great place to get a lot of important information. So one is that saliva is probably the most commonly used for genetic testing. So, you know, you can do a cheek swab and you can get information that will let you get a, a genomic profile on yourself, which is, I think, an incredibly valuable thing to do. And... And I've done it a, a few times from a few different uh, vendors, including including uh, my own at, at Aravel. But you can get a lot of information off of that. And the information off of the genome is just getting better all the time. In fact, I just reviewed this a couple of days ago. It was really fascinating uh-huh. because I'll come back to that in a second. So if you're looking at genetics, right, okay. which mostly comes off of a, a saliva test being the most common, a few different things. So one is that when we paired genetic information with blood information. This we did with some of the data we had at Aravale. And we looked at people, if they're going through a wellness program, they're trying to lower, let's say that one side effect of that might be that you could lower your LDL cholesterol levels, right? The so-called bad cholesterol. uh, Or raise HDL cholesterol levels, right? Good cholesterol. What we found was that the outcome of whether or not a person was able to lower their LDL cholesterol by lifestyle intervention was predictable by genomics. So if you take people that have the equal high cholesterol levels, they're all treated exactly the same in the healthcare system today because they don't basically don't use genomics for this. Some people, their genes would predict that they'd be high. 
and some their genes predict low. Okay. So if there's a gap between your level of cholesterol but your genome predicts you'd be low, those people were very successful at lowering LDL cholesterol by lifestyle. But if their genome predicted high and they were high, we saw no statistically significant difference ability at all wow. for those people to lower their LDL cholesterol by lifestyle. So the key variable is, you know, what we as engineers yeah. call the delta, yeah. right? But the difference, right. the difference between what the genome says and what your actual level is. There you can. Uh, that was true for LDL. It's true for HDL. And you can go kind of down. Looks like it's probably true for hemoglobin A1C and get into the reasons for that. So there's all kinds of value in understanding those genetics. And, we're and when about we did that, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say when you're talking about um, trying to lower healthcare costs, right? Imagine that population that doesn't really need uh, these expensive drugs, right, to help with those problems, but could take other potential steps to, to reduce those, you know, potential end disease states, right? Exactly. Like if your genome's predicting high, the odds that you can lower yourself by lifestyle are not good. To do that, you're probably, you know, you're going to have to go on a statin. Like that's, and, you know, doctors believe very much in statins in general. And, you know, and there's, uh, there's actually some, you know, a lot of different benefits that might come from that. Uh, but there are also downsides. Uh, if you take a statin, you know, there's a 10% uptick in the rate of diabetes mm. in people on statins. So one of the things I definitely recommend, or that's definitely interesting to, uh, you know, to look at is, you know, to monitor for, you know, different markers, you know, that you might sure. want to, you know, want to see, you know, work with your doctor on monitoring those and, you know, good doctors will, will be doing that anyway. So there's a lot of interesting things that you can get into on that front. And when we did that analysis and showed, you know, that, that genetics predicted the outcome of these lifestyle interventions, the amount of variance that we could capture on LDL cholesterol, I think was, was like 11% of it or something like that. Wow. And which doesn't sound like maybe a lot, but it's a, enough to go from like kind of the green good zone on clinical tests through the yellow and all the way into the red. Like it's clinically meaningful, that amount. But the point I wanted to make is that I might not get these numbers exactly right, but it was based on about 75 variants. Now, since then, in the years between when we did that, a whole ton more genomes have been sequenced. Okay. And so- we're now able to do, so the new test, the new version has something like, I won't say the exact number because I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but it's, uh, it has thousands of variants now, way, way more. And what it turns out is that this long tail of genetic effects, like we can now explain like twice as much of the variants that we could before. So it's gone up significantly. A really good example of this, and I'm, I'm just starting to think about this because I think it's so interesting. So in the early days of genomics, we looked at a trait height, right? We all know height is very heritable, right? right? Tall parents have tall kids, short parents have short kids. On average, that's pretty true. But in the early days of genetics, we tried to find, you know, the gene for, for height. Can't find it. <laughs> or the small subset of genes for height or whatnot. It turns out there's something like, I think it's well over 100,000 different genetic variants. I think it was 180, but wow. I, you know, again, I, <laughs> I want to look at the numbers to be exactly sure there are papers on all this. But it turns out that height is, and you can predict, you get a correlation of like 0.6 with predicting height. It's high. Okay. So it's like the most heritable thing that we, you know, of, of all these measures that we've gone through <laughs> in the scientific field, right. right? Not me personally, but, you know, as we've gone through that, it's one of the most heritable things, but it's distributed across a huge number of genes to get there. 
So one of the really fascinating elements of the genome now is we're just able to predict vastly more, but it's not around a single SNP. And this gets into certain areas where, you know, being at the cutting edge of being able to do the algorithm starts to let you get at this vastly richer, more impactful measure. And some of the areas like this, like the early days of nutrigenomics or something like this, which got kind of a bad rap, and some of the genomic and commercial genomics, which got kind of a bad rap. And part of the reason for that was that there was such a push towards tell you about the SNP, right? This right. One, one base pair change and what it means. But a SNP typically has less than a 1% effect. So, because if it's common, almost by definition, it has a small effect because otherwise it would be selected against and there'd be some reason for it. So all of this is getting into this notion that as we get enough data that you can apply the AIs, you can, you can do you know, more deep analysis, turns out that you can push this predictive power for a lot. So even just in the last two or three years, we're, we're way better at this than we were uh, just a couple of years ago. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I really think what's available now in that in the genetic testing and, and just like you're saying is is really starting to to take off. There's a lot of stuff coming out on newborn screening, right? And how to mm -hmm. find this stuff really early, right? And I know there's a lot of research being published and a lot of legislation, or at least talk about it, right? What, what we should be doing there. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, we've looked at some of the research. There's, uh, you know, there's this BabySeq project yep. that Robert Green at Harvard is leading, which is absolutely fascinating. I love his work so much. And uh, Lincoln Nadal at uh, Intermountain led a really interesting study in people, you know, we're looking at sequencing for um, premature babies. And one of the things that comes up is that a lot of those issues come back to rare diseases. Mm -hmm. And rare disease is one of the areas that genomics has been the most relevant to because it turns out it's much easier to find problems in a genome for rare disease than common because it's not distributed a bunch of common SNPs. It's right. usually like some unusual event that's just different than everyone else. So it, it kind of stands it out. Pretty easily. And they were able to show a very significant reduction in the amount of time in the NICU. The trajectory of health for the babies becomes radically better when they find these, uh, these issues. Because uh, some of the times knowing that what happened in the genome you know, suggests something on an N of one level that you can do as an intervention. Mm -hmm. So those things are incredibly promising, just, yeah. just super, super uh, cool to see that, that research coming out. So what's next for, for you and Thorne? You know, I know you're focused on preventative medicine and, and scientific wellness. So what is the next big project that you can tell us that you're working on? <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of areas that I'm really, really interested in. So one is that we're pushing forward on you know, these measurement platforms. And I mentioned, you know, the one draw and the microbiome wipe and some things like that. What we're really looking to do is to, is to greatly broaden the depth of the kinds of measures that we can make on an at-home device, moving from, you know, say, you know, 40 measures that we do, you know, in our current biological age to instead being able to make thousands of measures okay. tied into a really deep, ability to tie that into health relevant information. I'm being slightly vague there, but it's <laughs> a pretty precise plan that we have in, in place. But basically what this is going to do is we think we can develop 
really advanced information that you can get at pretty low cost, where we can give insights across a huge range of health scores. And then what, what we're looking to do is to pull together scientific wellness, which gives us longitudinal information so that we can look at, you know, person taking a test, doing interventions like we recommend, mm-hmm. taking a test afterwards. Like we really want to ramp up the number of people that are going with us on a scientific wellness journey where they can learn an incredible amount about what's happening in their body. And we love the idea of coming back and testing repeatedly for a couple of reasons. One is it makes it very obvious to our customer, you know, to a person coming in that did what we recommend do for them what we said it would. And they can just measure it. You know, if we said, you know, you should take these fibers they are going to help your microbiome, well, measure it before and after. And you can see perfectly well for yourself whether or not what we said as a recommendation worked for you, you know, in addition to how you, you know, how you feel and, you know, the kind of responses we get back. Internally for us, that's also super helpful because, you know, we want to get better at that. So every time we get a measure, you know, if we have some measurements on someone, they did the intervention, we get it back, we either see, okay, yes, we nailed it, they, you know, they got the improvement, you know, wonderful. That's never going to be 100%. Top 10 selling drugs in the US work for 10% of the people, according to this, you know, nature paper from Nick Shore. So, you know, there's a lot of room for precision improvement, and that's got to be true in the natural product realm as well. I mean, it has to be. So what we want to do then is also, if someone went through a program, and let's say we didn't get as much of the response that we would hope to see, which has to be true part of the time. It has to be. So we want to learn from that. Right. So what we want to do is we want to make it as visible as possible to, you know, the people who are with us, you know, where they're getting improvement and why. And so the AI systems what we're building are really centered around understanding that really deep molecular data, being able to make recommendations that are highly personalized so that we can up the fraction of people who respond positively. Because what you'll see, you know, if you read through like reviews, you know, so like Thorne's reviews on Amazon, right? Sure. People, you know, and we tend to get, you know, better than four and a half stars, you know, on Amazon. So we, people are generally very happy with what we're doing. But it's still true that, you know, numbers like, yeah, you know, I think this product, you know, was useful for me. I think this helped. And then maybe one in 10, it's like, this changed my life. Like I, I had this issue for 20 years and it's gone. And what that means is that that particular issue, this time they, you know, it solved the thing. And it's usually a combination of things that you've got to go through, you know, to really get to, why am I always bloated? Why am I always, the, you know, you know, like, can you solve it? So we see that, you know, a fraction of the time, it's like someone has a huge, an early example, you know, was a, a friend of mine and we had, uh, we had these conversations. He was pretty early in his careers in grad school. and you know, I remember he came in and he's just like, I don't have the same zest for life that I used to. Like, I'm disillusioned. You know, should I drop out? You know, I'm kind of questioning his life philosophies. You know, maybe I don't believe, you know, you just, and we had all these like hours of conversations around, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm unhappy. I'm, you know, it's like life isn't what it used to be. Anyway, went through this a lot. And at one point in time, he ended up going and doing a deep blood measure. You know, with, he got a good doctor, they did a deep blood measure. And it turned out his blood iron was just abysmal. He just, for whatever reason, he was, so they got him taking, you know, he took some supplements so he could, you know, get his, his iron levels back. And he came in and he's like, hmm. he's excited. And he went on to, 
you know, went on to MIT and then to Wall Street and then to, you know, leads an AI team and one of the big tech, like he's a freaking superstar, right? He's brilliant, brilliant guy. But if he never figures that out, he's not, he probably isn't right. He doesn't have the energy level. It's a, such a simple example, but it's just, sometimes there's a, there's just an issue that you, yeah. if you can find it. And so what we want to do then, anyway, to come back to that, and I'm going to give one other example is, you know, we want to be able to increase the deep ability to understand what's happening in your health. What is it that's really bothering you and have a higher chance that we can help you find the thing or the set of things that's going to make, you know, the personalized to you is going to really make a difference. And so what we want to do is really transition a lot more of our relationship with our customers from being, okay, I'm coming on and I'm, you know, I'm going to buy a product, I'm going to buy a vitamin, I'm going to get on nicotinamide riboside, or I'm going to do, you know, whatever. And, you know, those things are all great. And I, I do a lot of those things, <laughs> but we'd love for, you know, a subset of the people, you know, who are with us to actually, you know, go through, do the deep testing and kind of go on a journey with us where we build increasingly sophisticated models, including we have this really incredible digital twin technology where we can start to understand and build a model for how your physiology responds, how you work so that the recommendations that we give to you become better and better and better for you. You know, that's a lot what I believe in, in, you know, trying to build out this piece of scientific wellness. And partly I'm building what I want for my own life, you know, because <laughs> sure. I think this would be useful and try to build that out. The second big thing that we're really diving in, in a big way, is around brain health. Okay. And this is where we've actually built the most sophisticated of these digital twin models, working with a, a partner of, of ours uh, called Embody Bio. And essentially what we're doing is building out a very sophisticated capability to monitor brain health. And I won't get into it too much yet, okay. But we're going to launch a lot more around on this in the upcoming year. But it's really an area that is really ripe for prevention. Because if you think about things like dementia and Alzheimer's, if you try to treat Alzheimer's after you're significantly down that road and a bunch of your neurons have died, right. you've lost a bunch of synapses right, that contain your memories and thought process. No one knows how to put that back together. And I was a NIH funded Alzheimer's researcher for 10 years. And, you know, so I, you know, I know that field, but no one knows how to put those things back together. But prevention is very doable. And the whole paradigm of that disease has been terribly wrong for a long time. And we think that there are many approaches that you can take to delay the onset of mild cognitive impairment into dementias, Alzheimer's, those kind of things. We'll have a big push coming around that and some of the real deep science we've done. We've shown this to a lot of people kind of you know, behind the scenes. There's a lot of, yeah, there'll be a lot of, of push in that direction going forward as well. Some of those things are, are really life-changing. Like you mentioned, I mean, I think there's probably not one of our listeners who doesn't know somebody that's been impacted by a friend or family member you know, themselves, right? Having being diagnosed with cancer or having Alzheimer's. So I really, I think it's admirable, right? The focus on wellness and I love the crossover, right? Uh, and not just understanding what's going on with your body, but how it works and how you can use that information to take care of yourself. Yeah. And I'll just say 
one more thing on that front, which, you know, this amyloid hypothesis, which, you know, has really taken a beating <laughs> over the last few years and huge beating the last few months with, you know, some of the initial papers actually turning out to be fraudulent, which is kind of it's a whole other huge deal in science. But a big problem around amyloid was it was a mistake of cause for what is actually in many ways a compensatory mechanism, which we could get into. Amyloid is actually has this property of when your neurons start dying for other reasons, primarily driven by uh, metabolic issues. You know, when you start dying, like you literally have to recruit more synapses in order to keep your brain cells alive. And the molecule that the brain secretes do trigger that process, amyloid beta. Mm. So we've basically gone around, I had a discussion with someone yesterday and he had a good analogy. And he's like, oh, you mean this is like if we looked at infectious disease and we started attacking the white blood cells? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, kind of, that's kind of right. You, know, you started attacking, you're like, oh, geez, every time this happens, we see these things are in abundance, we must shut them down. So there's this whole issue, and it's one of the things I really believe in strongly with this notion of scientific wellness, is as we get signals that come earlier, we have a much better chance of looking at a whole movie of the process as you go towards disease and disentangling cause, consequence, and compensation. Okay. So cause is like the trigger for a disease. You know, consequences, right? What are all the down thing problems that just cascade from that? But then compensation is what does the body do to try to counteract, recover from that? And when you only look at late stage disease, right, which is what, you know, case control studies typically do. And right. there's all kinds of reasons we do that from budgetary, like if you're, if you're getting, and I've done this a million times myself, right? But if you're doing a grant from the NIH, you need a signal, you need, you only, you have a very limited budget, you're going to do a case control study on late stage disease because you can't recruit people and wait and watch them for 20 years. Happens, right? It's too expensive. No one, you can never do it. And that's what got me so excited about scientific wellness, because if you can build programs, you know, to monitor and improve wellness in a data-driven way with deep science, and it's valuable enough to yep. people that they'll, that they'll be with you, that unlocks the whole future of health from a proactive standpoint. And, you know, it's the thing I most believe in, I yeah. suppose. And it's that element that I think gets us to a very different place in our relationship to healthcare, our relationship to our own, you know, health spans, like just being able to deepen that to where we actually start to understand and know what tips us towards a disease that we could avoid, you know, beyond what we can just do with general wellness. It gets us into a state of why is it that certain days I have massive energy and I can just focus and just, you know, life is awesome. And other days I just can't get myself to do anything or What's the difference between those? Can we understand our own physiology to the extent that you know we can manipulate that, up it, make it better? Have you know? Can we have a great day, you know, productive and you know most of the time? You know, <laughs> how do we get ourselves to where we can, you know, just control our wellness in a way that has just never been before possible? Can we get to that kind of state? I think yeah. it's really important. Well, certainly can sign me up. <laughs> I think it'd be <laughs> fascinating to follow that journey into you know, to that deep learning about yourself from the digital twin, right? I think the way that I look at it is who better to invest in than yourself, right? So as you think about wellness, right, I think that it really rings true. And I think Absolutely. it would be fascinating to, to be able to have that information and see how you react in that whole cycle of information. 
But look, Nathan, it was a, a real pleasure to catch up with you today. I really appreciate you joining us. I think we all have now a much better idea of the importance of scientific wellness and how it can improve our longevity and possibly help save the healthcare system in the long term. <laughs> it's also, I think, been great giving our listeners an understanding of the importance of things like gut health and brain health and how being proactive and using preventative care can help us change the outcome. And so to all of our listeners, I hope you enjoyed a glimpse into the future of healthcare and how you can take control of your own well-being. Um, if you want to learn more about uh, Thorne and, and the great things that Dr. Price is doing here, we'll post a link to their website in the episode's show notes, uh, which you can find on our site at www.spititoutpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders. 